you would take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Revelation chapter number 20. Revelation chapter number 20. I think some of you probably know that I, I do some teaching for the seminary on Mondays as an adjunct teacher. I teach languages, but from time to time I'll get roped into a preaching class, usually for one of our Bible colleges, and I always say in teaching a preaching class, preachers, you never get in the pulpit and start by saying, this is a difficult passage. Having said that, this is a difficult passage. <laughs> but what, what, I, what I fear and what I'm warning against with those preaching students is that they'll frame the passage in such a way as to discourage the interest of the congregation. I fear that the perception might be if our pastor, who has endeavored to understand this passage all week, is yet to come to a clear understanding of this passage, what hope have we in the 20, 30, or 50 minutes that he may preach this morning? What hope have we? Now, I want to point to the difficulty of the passage, but not to dissuade you from fixing your attention on the teaching of this passage. I want to point out that there are certain essentials which are non-negotiable expressed in our passage. As we sang earlier, we believe in the crucifixion. We believe in the resurrection. We believe that he is coming back again and that we, in the likeness of his physical resurrection, will ourselves be physically resurrected from the dead at the second coming of Jesus. About this, there can be no compromise. There can be no negotiation. However, the manner or the order with which Jesus comes, the manner or the order in which the events surrounding the second coming of Jesus have for now 1,700 years been debated to some degree or another. Now, I just don't have time and what time I am afforded to go through all of the varying views on Revelation 21 through 10. So all you're going to get is my view with all of the conviction that I can muster. Listen, if I didn't think I was right, I would change my mind. So you're going to hear my position on Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. But I want to attempt to be charitable along the way and to acknowledge that if you and I are not on the same page with regards to the details of Revelation 20, that does not make you or me a heretic. It makes us brothers with a point of disagreement on what is a secondary issue. Now, just because something is not an issue of first importance does not mean it's an issue of no importance at all. But we're going to land, by the time we land this plane this morning, at three points of agreement about which there can be consensus regardless of how you understand the ins and outs of Revelation 21 through 10. If, if, you've, if you've been at our church for less than four years, then you have been subject to my little speech in the new members class and the starting point class. There's always a point where I, I have wrapped up talking through our non-negotiable doctrinal commitments. And I will say immediately after that, there, there, is, an, there is an unseen non-negotiable doctrinal commitment that we make together as a body. 
namely that we don't elevate secondary and tertiary issues to that of first importance. And this morning should be an example of that, and I would encourage you, brothers and sisters in Christ, that the world is watching not only how we discuss issues like this about which there can be some contention, but all other issues, and in these conversations we should conduct ourselves with charity and Christ-likeness toward those about us. Now that's a really self-serving pre-sermon speech, right? But it's really just through pastors saying, don't throw stuff, and don't kill me. My view is not your view in all likelihood. It's probably not the one that you were raised being taught or that you have picked up in subtle ways through the culture. So listen, test me and try me like Bereans this morning and see if we can't make some sense of Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. If you found your way there, join me as we stand together to read the Word of God. Now we always read together. But I want to admonish you that you would read closely and carefully. And if you have preconceived notions about the second coming of Jesus, that you would test them against what these 10 verses say. Listen to God's word. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven with a key to the abyss and a great chain in his hand. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss, closed it, and put a seal on it so that he would no longer deceive the nations until the thousand years were completed. After that, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones and people seated on them who were given authority to judge. I saw the people who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of God's word who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and who had not accepted the mark on their foreheads or on their hands. They came to life and reigned with the Messiah for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they'll be priests of God and of the Messiah, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. They came up over the surface of the earth and surrounded the encampment of the saints, the beloved city. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed them. The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. May God grant understanding, and may the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. Revelation chapters 20 through 22 are a testament to the faithfulness of Jesus to answer the promises he made to the church in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. You don't have to turn back there, but if you'll remember for just a moment that Jesus addresses each of those seven churches and offers each uniquely some blessed hope, some promise at the end of their journey, faithful unto Christ, having laid their life down for the advancement of the kingdom. An example of this is Revelation 3, 21, 
where Jesus speaks to the church at Laodicea. And he calls upon them to persevere in the faith. He says in verse 21, the victor, I will give him the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I also won the victory and sat down with my father on his throne. This is the most obvious example of Jesus attesting by vision to his ability, his willingness, to the guarantee that God will see through the promises made to the church. If you lay down your life for the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be given the ability to sit with him on the throne God has assigned him at the right hand of the Father. Now, there are a lot of peripheral issues in Revelation 20, 1 through 10, but that is the main idea of the text. There is an answer provided here to a question that must have been asked in those seven churches of Asia Minor, namely, what in the world has happened to our friend Antipas? Has Antipas missed out on something? Has he, has he come short of receiving any blessing from God? Remember, Antipas in Pergamum was cut down for his faith in Jesus. Where is he now? What has happened to him now? And Revelation 20 tells us that he enjoys as a martyr of the faith the privileged position of being seated on the throne with Jesus. Those who die for the faith or in the faith enjoy the great privilege of reigning eternally with Jesus. So there's reward. If you lay down your life for the advancement of the kingdom of Jesus or the glory of his name, you're not going to miss out on anything. If that seems a strange question to be asking, it was the question for the church in Thessalonica as well. For instance, they, they, they seem to be concerned that those who died before the second coming of Christ were going to miss something. Remember? In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul says, I don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who have fallen asleep. For the trumpet of God will sound and the dead in Christ will rise first. In other words, there is pride of position for the martyr in Revelation 20. And there is pride of position for those who have died in Christ in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. That is the force of the passage we're examining this morning. And in that, we ought to take heart. We ought to take some encouragement. Our friends, our brothers, our sisters who die for the faith or who die in the faith have not missed the blessing of the resurrection. We're assured of that here in Revelation chapter 20. But there are some peripheral details we must sort through to appreciate the full measure of that promise. Go to verse 1. The Bible says here, I saw an angel coming down from heaven with the key to the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And the book of Revelation says that Jesus has the key to death and hell and the grave. That's not some distant, removed, figurative, symbolic language. That is a literal expression that says that Jesus bears authority over death and hell and the grave. He quite literally holds the keys. The concept of the abyss we have been introduced to previously in the book of Revelation. That army of locusts comes from the abyss. The beast of the land, the beast of the sea come from the abyss. The dragon himself come from the abyss. 
What we see in essence in the next few verses, verses one through three, is this angel sent by God with a key to the abyss who takes and shoves Satan back into the hole from which he came. Verse two says he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years. You get this threefold language used to describe the dragon of revelation. He is the devil or Satan of Job. He is that serpent of old of the Genesis account. He is the dragon of the revelation. He is Satan bound for a thousand years. We'll deal with that more in just a moment. The Bible says in verse three, he threw him into the abyss, closed it, and put a seal on it said he would, so that he would no longer deceive the nations until the thousand years were completed. After that, he must be released for a short time. Notice that he is said here to be cast into the abyss and bound in order that he might not deceive the nations. This does not say that he will be without any power whatsoever. Peter is clear, the devil prowls about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. The passage does not say that he would not invite or evoke from the abyss a beast from the sea, a beast from the land, or any other demonic influence that might trouble or torment the church or bring tribulation. It says only that he is here limited, that he might not deceive the nations until the thousand years were completed. In other words, Satan has been bound in such a way as, as to, to, to limit his capacity for blinding the eyes of people of every tongue and tribe and nation from seeing the truth of the gospel. I'll come back to this in just a moment. Just note that after that thousand years, he must be released for a short time. Verse 4, then I saw thrones. And people seated on them who were given authority to judge. I also saw the people who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of God's word, who had not worshipped the beast or his image or who had not accepted the mark on their foreheads or on their hands. They came to life and reigned with the Messiah for a thousand years. Again, if you lay down your life for kingdom purposes, for the glory of Jesus, you're not going to miss out on anything. I think we think in a wrong-headed way about this idea often. These teenagers seated down to my left, I'm sure have aspirations to do great things. And, and, and you might think of them as parents, as grandparents. I hope to see them achieve their hopes and dreams, to reach their ambitions, to achieve their aspirations. And if, God forbid, one or more were prevented from reaching those dreams, those achievements, those aspirations they have for themselves, we would in all likelihood regard them as having been cut short of something they were owed, deserved, something that might be a part of a natural length of life. But Revelation 20 is clear. A glad-hearted willingness to lay down our life for the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ, whether it be a literal dying for the advancement of the gospel or a literal dying to ourselves, our hopes, our dreams, our ambitions, is a worthwhile venture rewarded by being enthroned alongside the Lord Jesus Christ to reign for all eternity. I don't know how that works. I don't know what it looks like. 
I don't know what they're given specifically to do. I only know that they are joined with Jesus in the authority he bears over all the earth. I saw the people who had been beheaded because of their testimony reigning with Jesus. Now note in the last sentence of verse 4, they came to life and reigned with the Messiah for a thousand years. Verse 5 says, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. And what I'm contending for this morning, what I'm saying to you this morning, is that the first resurrection, as it is described in these verses, is the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the salvation of every believer bound up in his experience of resurrection. Several times throughout the New Testament, we are, we are described as the present recipients of resurrection power. There is a sense in which you and I are not just waiting to be resurrected, we are walking in resurrection power. Ephesians 2.1 says, we were dead in our sins and trespasses, but we have been made alive in Christ Jesus. We have been raised. In Romans chapter 6, the Bible says you have been raised to walk in the newness of life that is the result of resurrection power. Just as Christ has been raised from the dead, so too we, by faith, have been joined together in the likeness of his resurrection. The first resurrection, as it's referenced here in our passage, is a reference to the resurrection of Jesus and the salvation experience of every person who believes and trusts in Christ for the forgiveness of our sin. If I could put this in the most controversial of terms possible so that you understand entirely what I'm saying, the thousand-year reign of Jesus begins with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, it's obviously been more than a thousand years since Jesus rose from the dead. If, if that was your thought, you are tracking well. But a thousand years in apocalyptic literature is not to be taken literally, but symbolically, figuratively, for a really long period of time. I like to say around our house that my wife has the gift of exaggeration. She is quite adept at exaggeration. She's smiling because she knows it is true. She can make something about this big seem like it's this big. And the children are picking up on this. If I'm driving around and Hunter or Bo rather ask, my four-year-old ask for the 15th time how long it will be before we get to where we're going, he will likely respond to any response I offer, exasperated, it's going to be a thousand years. <laughs> now, in four-year-old world, that means 15 minutes. But in apocalyptic literature, it means a really, really long time. So what I'm saying to you is that the, the, reign, the thousand year reign of Jesus is a reign under which we live now, which is really not a new or novel idea. All authority has been given unto Jesus in heaven and on earth. Jesus has always been actively ruling and reigning. The new ad here, the nuance is that he has been joined in that thousand-year reign by all who lay down their lives for the advancement of the gospel. Now we're getting closer again to the heart of what John seeks to teach in Revelation chapter 20. Now we mentioned a, a moment ago that after that, the devil, that dragon, that serpent of old must be released for a short time. 
at the end of the reign of the millennial reign of Jesus, Satan is released for a short time, which accords neatly with that period of great tribulation that Jesus foretells just prior to his second coming. So that's the scheme, that's the system, that's the view that is before you this morning. And there are a number of features in our passage that lend themselves to that particular view. If you go back to the end of verse 4, they came to life and reigned with the Messiah for a thousand years. And verse 5 goes on to say the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. What in the world is that? Who are the rest of the dead? Those that are brought to life, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. If you die in Christ, you are in an instant swept up and you are now in the presence of God. But the rest, everyone in Christ and out of Christ are physically resurrected at the second coming of Jesus. The rest of the dead were not raised until after the thousand years is just a way of saying that at the end of this period, all of the dead, saved and unsaved, will be brought before Jesus for judgment, and that happens to be the topic of conversation in verses 11 through 15, which are the next section in our study of Revelation chapter 20. The idea of the first resurrection as the experience of salvation is supported by verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of the Messiah, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. What might we say of a person who has been born again? Someone is saved in a service, and we say of them, the second death no longer has any power over them whatsoever. Someone bows their head and heart and prays that God would forgive them of their sin. They receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We might say of them, they have become priests of God and of the Messiah. The second death cannot touch them. And now we've added to the idea of a person's salvation experience, changing their status, changing their position, that they will reign with Christ for a thousand years. All of these descriptions of the first resurrection experience. Now look to verse 7. When the thousand years are completed... Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. What in the world is Gog and Magog? Well, I'm glad you asked. This is imagery that John is drawing from Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39. In those days, Ezekiel prophesies that this far north nation is going to come and align itself against the nation of Israel. This is going to be the source of disaster for the Israelite people. And it's a little obscure, even in Ezekiel 38 and 39. Gog is a person, Magog is the people, and the identification of those persons or peoples is really very difficult. You know, sometimes when you're reading an Old Testament passage, there's a, an element of mystery about a passage. And you might even begin to look and inquire with commentaries as to what this passage meant in its original context. And there might be a lack of clarity at a few points along the way. You're not the first person who's experienced that. And often in the Old Testament period, when there was mystery about a passage of Scripture, born out of that mystery would be writing and conjecture about what was actually meant in this somewhat mysterious passage. 
given that there's a little mystery about Gog and Magog in, in Ezekiel 38 and 39, born out of that mystery was this long-standing tradition that Gog and Magog would be associated with the last days, the coming of the Messiah, the end of all things as we know them. Gog and Magog became symbolic for that end times army that would oppose the people of God. John uses Gog and Magog here to signify to us that whereas in past times in Revelation, he was speaking about things in our past or in the present experience of the seven churches of Asia Minor, he is now clearly speaking of that which is to come. He's not drawing on his immediate cultural context. He's saying this is what the future holds for the church. Gog and Magog aligned in battle formation against the people of God. This is what the future looks like on the back end of this heavenly millennial reign of Jesus. Verse 9 says, They came up over the surface of the earth, and they surrounded the encampment of the saints, the beloved city, and then fire came down from heaven and consumed them. This is the same battle we talked about in last week's passage, the same battle described in that famous Battle of Armageddon passage, and yet again, conspicuously absent in the battle passage is any battle whatsoever. It is that the fire of God falls and consumes the enemy armies as they align themselves against the people of God. Now go back to verse 8. Just think in an orderly manner here. Satan goes out to deceive the nations at the four corners of the earth. Gog and Magog, this great end times army, to gather them for battle and their number is like the sand of the sea. This seems insurmountable. Their number is like, you know, how many, you know how much sand there is on the sea? There's a lot. There's a whole lot. And that's how Gog and Magog, this army opposing the purpose, the plan, and the people of God are numbered here. This is an insurmountable task before the church. Listen carefully again to verse 9. They came up over the surface of the earth and surrounded the encampment of the saints, the beloved city. This is subjective, I get that, but it feels to me like John is being really careful to not say Jerusalem because he is not talking about geographic Jerusalem. He's talking about the encampment of the saints, and then he refers to the beloved city. Now, we, we tend to think Jerusalem here, they're gathered around, and I know there's a whole system built around the idea that the armies of the earth are going to surround the city of Jerusalem, and that's going to be the battle of Armageddon. But I would contend that that is not at all what is being described in our passage. We think that way because New Jerusalem is discussed in the next chapter. That's, that's what sort of sets our expectation to read geographic Jerusalem. But turn over to Revelation 21 and verse number 9. I want to tell you who New Jerusalem is, what is referenced in that particular verse. 21.9 says, One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came and spoke with me. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Now, who is the bride, the wife of the Lamb? The church. You and I, as believers in Christ, are the bride. We are the wife of the Lamb. Verse 10. He then carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, 
coming down out of heaven from God, arrayed with God's glory. The new Jerusalem is not about the construction of a new city or even a new geographic location descending from heaven, but the assembly of all who have died for Christ and all who have died in Christ. We are the body of Christ. We are the bride of Christ. We are the wife of the Messiah. We are the beloved city. We are the encampment of the saints. We are the new Jerusalem. What's being described in Revelation 20 and verse number nine is the experience wherein the armies of the world, the enemies of God, have gathered themselves in battle formation, ready to pounce upon the church. And the odds are insurmountable. We have no recourse. We have nowhere to turn. There is no escaping. We are as Israel with backs against the Red Sea and nowhere to go. And then Jesus shows up to rescue us in our despair. And fire falls from heaven. And the enemies of God's plan, his purpose, and his people are destroyed in an instant. That's your pastor's view of Revelation 20, 1 through 10. We should note that this is all brought to a close in verse 10. As the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever. I, I like to point out, and I've spoken to this a few times, and you may have wondered what I intended, but there's sometimes a criticism in philosophical circles that the Bible does not deal with the problem of evil. There are other world religious systems and philosophies that seek on a conceptual level to deal with the problem of evil, how evil could be a part of a world that was ruled by a, an inherently good God. What I like to point out is that God, rather than involving himself in mindless conjecture, just moves in human history to address the problem of evil. Other world religions account for the existence of evil, but only the God of the Bible addresses the problem of evil and he does so in the crucifixion and resurrection of his son, the atoning blood that applies to you and to me by faith. And ultimately, in the end, in the judgment of the sin of the world and the casting of Satan, the armies of the earth, the, the false prophet and the beast and all of their subjects into a lake of fire and brimstone. This is God dealing with the problem of evil. Now, depending on the extent to which you are married to a certain view, you may have pushback at various points along the way, but there are, what I want to spend the last few minutes here on, three principles that derive from our passage that we ought to agree on and be refreshed and encouraged by in some pretty significant ways. Because, and I think this is an important note, the point of the passage is not to set our graph or our chart for understanding the last days. The point of the passage is to encourage us as to the victory we have in Jesus, that laying down our life for the gospel, laying down our life for the glory of our God is a worthwhile enterprise. Principle number one, the success of the church is guaranteed. And Satan has been bound limited in such a way as that he cannot deceive the nations. 
Sometimes I think we have a wrong-headed view here. We think about going out and we worry if we'll be fruitful. We worry about how we might be mistreated. We worry about how we might be received. But dear brothers, don't you know that we have assurance of victory as we preach the message of the gospel? When Jesus said, I have sheep that are not yet of this fold, that's not just some well-informed guess as to what the future holds. That's a statement born out of sovereign, divine decree. I have sheep that are not yet of this fold. The success of the church of Jesus Christ is guaranteed. Notice in our passage that Satan is never the initiator. God comes and he throws him into the abyss. He binds him. And then he has loosed the passive tense verb. He's let out. He doesn't escape. He doesn't get out. He doesn't break the chain. He doesn't carve a new key. This isn't some get out of Alcatraz abyss version. He is let out and only permitted in our life, in my life, in your life, to do that which serves our benefit. All things are being worked together for the good of those who love God, the called according to his purpose. He is on a short leash with a sovereign God, and that's good news for you and for me. Success of the church is guaranteed. Secondly, the dead in Christ will actively reign with Christ until his coming. We will, dead in Christ, reign with Christ for all eternity. I wish I knew more about what that looks like, how that operates, how that's managed. I, I don't know. We, we're going to get, in the last few weeks of our study of, of Revelation, a chance to spend considerable time on heaven. And I am really looking forward to spending considerable time in heaven. After this passage, you might be encouraged to know things get much, much easier in the book of Revelation. And we're just encouraged as to what the future holds for the church, the guarantee of great success in the preaching of the gospel and the assurance that we will be co-heirs with Christ. Romans 8, 16 and 17 says, the spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children and if children also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, seeing that we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Here's the third principle. Not nearly as optimistic as the first two, but one that we must reckon with. Things are going to get much worse before they get any better. This is a reality for us. I, I want to be charitable in my treatment of uh, less than first importance level issues. If there is one Oh, if there's one hobby horse I'll have a tendency to beat in this particular realm or vein of, of teaching, I just don't understand where the notion of our being exempted from the troubles and difficulties of life ever really came from. I don't believe at all that we have any assurance of any escape from the difficulties of the present hour or any hour which is to come. Things are going to get worse before they get any better. And you and I had better get on board with understanding the principle and the prophecy of the Apostle Paul that said, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. I spoke a few weeks ago to the shooting in Nashville and how I was vexed and angered at what we observed. And we made certain connections to the teaching of 
revelation with those events as they unfolded. I, I'm, I'm usually really reserved in making such statements or observations, but I think that that moment, that event, likely represents for us a turning of the page with regards to American Christianity. There is not a majority, but a significant minority of people who actively oppose the people of God, vocally actively oppose the people of God, and at times violently, defiantly oppose the will, the word, and the people of God. The Christian faith is no longer the predominant and socially acceptable faith within our country. Our culture has taken a decided turn against the things of God, and that does not bode well for you or I as followers of Jesus. You had better get comfortable with the notion of suffering for your commitment to follow faithfully after the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe decades down the road, that even now there can be subtle oppositions being ostracized, pushed back against, marginalized for your convictions, for your faith in Jesus Christ. It's going to get much, much worse before it gets any better whatsoever. In the last days, Satan will be loosed, and he is loosed to persecute the church. And this is only brought to its close. If Jesus shows up to rescue us in our despair. Aren't you glad for that promise? He's enough, isn't he? Isn't he enough? And don't you know? Do you believe? Do you believe that if you gave your life for gospel advancing purposes today, that it would be worthwhile? I have a graduate in this group. I won't point him out because it would embarrass him and he hates it when I do that, but he's sitting right over here. And, and I, I, don't, I don't know about you, but I've talked with my son about college and career and financial management and good work ethic and walking with Jesus into young adulthood and all those things that, that we talk about. But I don't know that there's ever been a moment in time when I sat down with him and said, you know, it would be a worthwhile thing if you died in service to Jesus before you ever really had a chance to achieve some of the hopes and dreams and aspirations that you might have. Now, I'm not sure how at home with that kind of statement you are, but it's a reality, it's a truth that's born out of the passage that we've just now observed. That if you or I were to give our lives for the advancement of the kingdom and the glory of our God, that represents for us not being cut out of something we might have believed ourselves to have deserved, but an eternal promotion to the right hand of Jesus, who is at the right hand of God, actively enjoining ourselves to his sovereign rule and reign over all creation. I can think of no greater hope or dream that a young person might hide away in their heart, that they, but that their life might be spent, that much would be made of Jesus, that he would be heralded as the famous one, as the glorious one, as the one worthy of all worship and all praise for all time to come. This is what Revelation 20 invites us to. So listen, as I said in the beginning, just because the matter is not an issue of first importance does not mean it is an issue of no importance. And I would suggest to you that a long, a curiosity-filled look 
at Revelation 20 might embolden us to take up the cross and to follow after Jesus, to imbibe the very kind of boldness and conviction that Revelation is calling us to, that we would say with our dying breath that Jesus, not Caesar, but that Jesus Christ is Lord, that we would not succumb to imperial propaganda, that we would not bow the knee to Roman emperors, but that our undivided allegiance be paid unto Christ and unto Christ alone. This is the strong invitation of our text. Do you believe it? Do you believe in the crucifixion, in the resurrection that Jesus Christ is coming again? And does all of your life orient itself around that simple truth? Let's go to Christ in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and for its encouragement to us. Thank you for the strong charge that this message serves to be for our graduates, for what it reminds us of as moms and dads, for the, for the invitation to come and die that it offers every person under the sound of my voice far and wide. God, I, I look toward heaven. I pray that you give me eyes to see what awaits us in glory. Give me the ability to see beyond the trappings, enticements, and temptations of life in the here and now. May our last breath be spent exclaiming that Jesus Christ is Lord of all the earth. We ask it in the power of his name.